0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast on July the 16th, 2010. My name's David Payne. The new coalition government's white paper on health, encompassing the future of the NHS in England, was published this week. If you live in the UK, you couldn't have failed to see the press reports issuing glowing praise or forecasting doom, depending, of course, upon their political leanings. To try and cut through the hyperbole, we're joined by Chris Hamm, Chief Executive of the health policy think tank The King's Fund and Professor of Health Policy and Management at the University of Birmingham. And he'll be joined by BMJ Careers Editor Ed Davis, who has his ear on the ground when it comes to doctors' opinions.
1: Um, but the reality is, is GP commissioning has been on the agenda for decades now and it's sort of stumbled along through fund-holding and practice-based commissioning. And it's never really taken off.
0: Also this week, we have published a paper online looking at suicide and how the method of an attempted suicide can predict a later success. Professor Bo Runason from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, joins us on the phone to discuss his research.
2: Attempts by hanging had a more than six times increased risk compared to self-poisonings.
0: But before all that, I have Annabel Ferriman, BMJ's news editor, who's here with a pick of this week's news. Hello, Annabel. Hello, David. And tell us what stories that have caught your eye this week.
3: Well, the big story of the week, of course, was the launch of the government's white paper on the NHS. Yes. Um, But I know that Chris Hamm, the head of the King's Fund, is being interviewed for the podcast, so I won't go into that except to say that it looks as if um, the NHS is going to be the victim of another huge upheaval, which is obviously going to keep our news pages busy for the next few years. Yes. So I thought I'd turn to a different subject, um, which is the work of that arch enemy of the medical profession, the tobacco industry, (laughs) and its brother mischief maker, the alcohol industry and their younger cousin, brother, um, who's coming up strongly on the outside, the food industry. Right. The food industry hasn't been um, demonised quite as much as the other two yet, though it does does seem to be coming in for quite a lot of stick uh, Mm. these days. Um, And we've got three articles in the journal about this. One is um, a column uh, by Doug Camero, uh, his observations column, and it reveals how soft drink manufacturers um, in in the States swiftly and effectively defeated moves by some uh, individual states to impose a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, which apparently these days are known as SSBs. I haven't heard the initials before, but anyway, Mm. they're SSBs. Um, And they wanted to introduce this tax to combat obesity. But um, the uh, manufacturers very cleverly got going, and there were lots of adverts on radio, television, newspapers, which often looked as if they were from grassroots. They often looked as if they were from poor people saying, you know, keep your hands off our sodas. Right. But actually they were all being uh, paid for, payrolled by the drinks industry. Oh. So, I mean, it's various people. New York Times revealed this and various people. So yes. so anyway, I thought that was quite a very interesting column. Yes. And it ties in quite a lot with two... Um, News stories we've got uh, on the news pages. The first is about how the new UK Health Secretary Andrew Lansley has decided to withdraw government funding from an anti-obesity campaign called Change for Life, which the previous government set up has been running for I think about a year. Yes, Lansley said that in future funding for the campaign wouldn't come from the Department of Health but would come from local government and charities and the food industry. But um, as our editorialist, Tim Lang, pointed out in these straightened times, actually local authorities and charities are not likely to be giving much money. So basically the food industry is likely to be funding this. Mm. And of course, you know, some people's heart sinks at this idea. And basically we have got an editorial to go with it sort of saying that... Um, this doesn't bode very well for anti-anti uh, anti- obesity yes. campaigns. Yes. In fact, we've got a nice cartoon by Malcolm Willits oh, yes, I'm showing, at it now. showing <laughs> yes, some of the things we won't be seeing in the near future, which is things like "Don't eat me crisps" and "Bad for you burger." Anyway, next to it in in the journal, but actually also on the web, is um, a useful cautionary tale about how the alcohol industry has learned a lot from the tobacco industry, and how the food industry is learning from both of them. And what it's based on a piece of research that was carried out in Australia. Some researchers in Australia delved into industry documents which have been made public under the Master Settlement Agreement of 1998, which was a deal under which um, the tobacco giants had to make public their archive uh, in exchange for a deal with um, the attorney generals of 46 states, which they dropped uh, lawsuits against them. Anyway, the researchers looking through all these exciting documents, discovered that some alcohol companies, such as the Miller Brewing Company, had drawn on to what the tobacco industry had learned about um, countering the threat of new taxes and the importance of developing allies, promoting personal responsibility, promoting bills on anti-discrimination. And there's a nice quote from um, Professor Simon Chapman, who's at Sydney University, saying these are voluntary codes of conduct, wholesome initiatives that are difficult to criticise, such as public education campaigns, provision of information and helplines, while at the same time actively working to resist, erode, weaken and destroy any form of top-down activity or tax policy that would have the capacity to seriously impact on their bottom line. Right. So I think that's quite interesting in the light of the fact that the food yes. industry is going to be sort of behind some of our public education campaigns.
0: Absolutely, yes. And uh, I gather so you're also keeping a watching brief, Annabelle, on one story that we noticed about whether the new coalition government might be actually changing some tobacco laws that were ushered in the sort of dying yes. days of the Labour government.
3: Yes. Rumour has it that um, there are two things that the government, the last government, introduced which was that we're going to get rid of vending machines in pubs and also public displays about tobacco in tobacconist shops or news agents and they require regulations to be drawn up and it's thought that this government won't actually draw up these right. regulations so it might be quietly just dropped yes. but we don't know that no, yet no, Of course so, not. but we'll and, uh, be keeping an eye on it and,
0: uh, dismantling of the nanny state yes
3: well <laughs> oh, right. rolling back the nanny state yes and,
0: uh, well, thank you for that annabelle if you've got anything to say on those stories remember you can see them on bmj.com and uh, you can respond by clicking the rapid response button thank you annabelle Now to the White Paper. For those of you not in the UK, a White Paper is a policy statement from a government and it sets out how they see, in this case the NHS, working in the future. It still has a way to go before it's put into practice, notably passing through the House of Commons, and will certainly change in some ways before it's finished. But to discuss the immediate impressions of the paper, the BMJ's Ashley McKim talks to Chris Hamm, chief executive of the health policy think tank The King's Fund and professor of health policy and management at the University of Birmingham.
4: Chris, I'd like to start by asking you just how revolutionary you think these new ideas are. Um, We know previous governments have tried to give more power to clinicians and patients. So what do you think is different in Andrew Lansley's case?
5: There's quite a lot of continuity, in my view, with what the previous government was saying. But I'd say overall, these are much more radical reforms than we'd expected, much more radical than we've seen previously at any time in the history of the NHS, in my view. And of course, much of the focus has been on the proposals for GPs to take control of most of the NHS budget, which... I think many people would say, is a move in the right direction. But it's much more radical and ambitious because no government has tried to give all that responsibility to GPs in the way that the coalition is now proposing. So it is a quite high risk strategy in that respect.
4: And you've told us a lot about and we've heard a lot about what it means for GPs with regards to commissioning of care. But what do you feel the proposals would do for junior doctors and, and more senior doctors working in the front line in the NHS?
5: Clearly, the government's very serious when it says it wants to move away from the target-driven culture that's been so important in the last 10, 13 years under the previous Labour government, because there's been a lot of concern among frontline staff, including junior doctors, about the impact that targets have on their day-to-day work, the way it constrains clinical judgment and professional freedoms. And On the other hand, from a patient point of view, you have to say that many of the big improvements around reductions in waiting times and improvements in clinical care have arisen precisely because there have been targets. So it's not a question of targets bad and frontline empowerment good. We need to get a balance right between the two. I think for frontline staff, the other thing that will really make a difference is GPs controlling all of the resource. So out in primary care, there'll be a greater opportunity for doctors, including doctors in training to shape how services are provided. But with that power goes responsibility, goes accountability for the use of public funds at a time when the money in the NHS is going to be much tighter. And I think uh, some of the leaders in the profession can clearly see that as a two-edged sword, a poison chalice, if you will.
4: Okay, and talking a little bit more about patients and Lansley's key message about getting patients to have a greater say in running in the NHS, um, can you tell us a little bit more about how this might happen? And do you think it will actually work?
5: What the government seems to be uh, aiming for here are two or three things. One is to expand the range of choices available to patients when they're uh, embarking on their treatment. Uh, That's part of the market-based reform. Secondly, to extend the policy around personal health budgets, direct payments, handing over money directly to patients to make choices about their own care particularly people say with long-term conditions and then thirdly this emphasis on shared decision-making that we should uh, look at the, the patient clinician interaction when the patient comes into the clinic or into the surgery and see that much more as a partnership in future where patients play a bigger role in deciding on treatment options or in deciding where they access their care in the longer term this could actually be the most revolutionary aspect of the government's plans if this government is more successful in taking that part of it forward than previous governments have been because again there are elements of continuity here the focus on patient-centered care more choice empowering patients is one we're very familiar with because it's been at the heart of healthcare care reform for the last decade or more
4: is, is there a fear there that patients who can't shout loudly enough about their conditions may not get heard as part of this
5: There is a concern. There's always been an issue in the NHS about the so-called Cinderella services, particularly mental health services for people with learning disabilities, people who have, if you like, quiet voices in healthcare, frail older people will be another example. So as in all areas of health policy, uh, one size won't fit all needs. We'll have to look at different ways of ensuring that patients really are at the heart of the health service, not just the articulate uh, middle-class users of healthcare for whom choice is very important, but some of the neglected groups as well.
4: And Looking at Lansley's plans for commissioning, he talks about splitting the commissioning from the current 152 primary care trusts to a much bigger number of GP-led consortia, somewhere around 500 people suggested. Do you think GPs will have the time or the experience or even the motivation to take on this new role?
5: Those are the very big questions which in my mind lie at the heart of the white paper and whether it can be implemented or not. Uh, I know that Andrew Lansley has been very impressed when he's been around the country talking to GPs and has been strongly influenced by what he's seen in places like Surrey, in Cambridgeshire, in Cumbria, where you have some very entrepreneurial GPs already playing a major part in practice based commissioning and delivering some promising early results. The question really is how typical are those GPs who are the innovators? and even among the enthusiasts the question is how expert they are, how competent are they to take on the commissioning of care, as well as the delivery of first-class primary care uh, services. So there will be opportunities, I'm sure, to bring in outside expertise. Some of that will exist in PCT, some in the private sector. And I guess the government will argue that if GPs have the motivation but not the competence, they will be able to call on those sources of external support. But this is a huge gamble. There is really no other country in the world whose healthcare system relies so much on primary care both as the provider of services and now also as the commissioner of most forms of specialist care as well. Does
4: does that mean it's likely to provide a doorway for private companies to come in and take control of running of GP practices in the UK?
5: My guess is that in many places, gps who are interested in commissioning will be looking to the best of the pct managers to leave pcts and come and work with them directly in the gp commissioning consortia
4: and, and finally i just wanted to ask you what happens next what happens now the white paper has
5: been published what happens now is there's going to be a three-month consultation period my reading is that the government is committed to go in the direction it set out it's uh, been able to publish his plans within, what, about two months of the uh, coalition government being formed. And uh, Andrew Lansley is not only a man with a plan, I think he's a man in a hurry to implement that plan where the consultation could make an important difference is around the missing detail on how the plans might work in practice. And also perhaps, and I hope this is the case, a bit more realism about how you hold GP commissioners accountable and the need to have in place local leadership of the NHS of the kind that PCTs and strategic health authorities are provided in future, even if they're going to disappear off the pitch.
4: Thanks. Um, so I'm also joined in the studio by Ed Davies, who's careers editor at the BMJ. Ed, there's been a lot of talk about commissioning um, among GPs. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about how GBs may respond to that.
1: Um, I think one of the sort of, uh, I hesitate to say lie, it's not a lie, but, but one of the big things that's come up from this is that it's a great radical reorganisation. Um, but the reality is, is GP commissioning has been on the agenda for decades now and it's sort of stumbled along through fundholding holding and practice-based commissioning. Um, and it's never really taken off. Um, and it seems that there are groups like the National Association of Primary Care, the NHS Alliance, now the BMA, who are all saying they're very up for this. But there are just a lot of GPs who don't really care. Um, the the Department of Health has has been publishing uptake uptake figures of practice-based commissioning since about 2006. And they sort of seem to show that almost everyone is involved now. But actually, in reality, on the ground, you have pockets of very engaged GPs and areas where no GPs are doing anything at all. And even within GP commissioning groups, which do already exist, call them consortia or whatever you like, they are there. Um, you've got some people who will sit in the meetings engaged and building services and others who will take it as an opportunity to do their crosswords.
4: Uh, reading the headlines in, in the newspapers over the past week, it appears the government white paper comes across as a very radical plan um, for the NHS. What are your feelings about how this will impact in GPs and do you feel it is a radical plan in the end of the day?
1: Uh, potentially it could go, it could completely change face the NHS. In reality, I really don't think it will. It's very much continuation of, uh, of what's already happening. And while we're um, dividing uh, GPs into 500 consortia and getting rid of PCTs and SHAs, it's, it's more than likely that we'll end up with former PCT managers managing the GP consortias from within the GP practice and things. Um, and so, effectively, you're really just making another 500 PCTs, and it wasn't that long ago that we had 300 PCTs, and it's just a bit of a reshuffle. I think possibly the one thing that does come up as a real shift of tone in the new government is that they're siding now with doctors as opposed to managers. Um, It's quite noticeable, the emphasis on clinical leadership has been pushed a lot since the DASI review in the last two years. But I think even more noticeable was just the subtle things you pick up on. I went to the NHS Confederation conference last year, and Andy Burnham, then Health Secretary, got up and made a great deal of how he was a former employee of the NHS Confederation, and he was one of them, and he was on side with the managers. This year, Andrew Lansley got up, gave a 30-minute written speech, which he pretty much read out from a lecture and sat down, took a few questions and left, whereas he was invited to the BMA's conference. And at the BMA conference, he got up and spoke for 20 minutes without any notes. He referred to committee members by their first names. He talked of previous meetings they'd had together and was clearly really there to woo the profession. And so I think the shift that this does herald is just an attitude of government that actually the doctors are their friends now rather than the managers, as has been the case for the last 13 years.
4: Uh, what do you think about what this may mean for the relationship between GPs and the government as far as GP contracts and pay negotiations?
1: The impression I get from GPs is that they are very enamoured by Andrew Lansley at the moment. If they are given more responsibility and Andrew Lansley is equally enamoured with them, we may find that incentives are the way to to get them involved in greater commissioning than they already are. The, The one interesting stumbling block in the white paper is... Uh, the reference to localising pay negotiations. And it doesn't state really yet whether this will have an impact on GPs and the quality and outcomes framework. But it does possibly hint that there will be big changes to the way they're paid. And I think that'll have to be a bit of a proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I I would be interested to see how how that pans out. Uh, The one thing I would add is that GPs can be a very militant bunch when their pay is threatened. And uh, I think if the government tries to fight them too hard on that, they might struggle
0: and we'll obviously be continuing to cover that in future podcasts as well as online and in print now suicide is estimated to take one million lives annually and even more patients have unsuccessful attempts can we learn anything from the ways in which people try and take their lives and how that will relate to them succeeding to do so in the future duncan jarvis talks to bo runison about his research published this week on bmj.com
6: I'm joined on the phone from Sweden by Bo Runison. He's a professor of psychiatry at the Karolinska Institute. He and his colleagues have published a paper looking at the link between the method of attempted suicide and the subsequent success. Bo, for a start, this isn't the first time that method of attempted suicide has been studied. What was known before your research?
2: Well, the problem is that we know very little Most studies concern self-poisonings, which of course is the most common method. But there are small studies, small Swedish study, for instance, that showed a more severe method, a more violent method, implied a higher risk. But this has not been studied thoroughly.
6: So you decided to look into this link in more detail. Can you tell us a bit about the population that you were looking at?
2: We um, used all suicide attempts that took place in Sweden between 1973 and 1982, that is a 10-year period, and these were all attempts that were admitted to hospital at least overnight. And then we followed them for a little more than 20 years, up to 30 years, depending on when we included them.
6: And you looked to see if any of those who had attempted suicide then went on to be successful in doing so. What did you find?
2: The first and more specific thing is that hangings uh, implied such a high risk. Attempts by hanging had a more than six times increased risk compared to self-poisonings. Attempts by drowning had a four times higher risk than self-poisonings. That is the first and and most important result. But then we also found that if we combined the risk... um, uh, by the method with the mental disorder apparent in these subjects. Those who had a psychotic disease had a even worse risk if they had attempted suicide by, for instance, hanging or another violent method.
6: Now, these studies are quite hard to do, suicide so multifactorial. What were the weaknesses or confounders in your study?
2: Um, <clears throat> well, a limitation, at least, is of course that we only include those who were admitted to hospital. That's a register, um, the hospital discharge register. So we know very little of those who never were admitted to hospital. Yeah, that's one limitation.
6: Is that a big limitation? Do you have any data on the number of people who try and kill themselves but aren't actually admitted to hospital?
2: People who never apply for help, and there are those who apply but are not admitted, and that may vary. Um, but uh, at least 50% or something uh, is admitted, and those who are admitted are those who have made more severe attempts, of course. So, for um, the clinician, this is relevant information. Yes, Th- these are the people that that we take care of uh, and and, um, want to know more about how to assess.
6: Yes, so there you mentioned clinicians. Is there a bottom line for them, uh, take home message from your research?
2: Well, the first um, implication is, of course, that these results may help in the acute risk assessment following suicide attempt. It is important to to, um, realize that, for instance, those who have attempted suicide by hanging or another violent method uh, implies a certain and and very dramatic risk. It's also important that many of those who attempted suicide by hanging used the same method when they uh, eventually successfully died. Uh, So it may also be of relevance uh, in the aftercare of patients to know that this is particular risk. They also make these attempts, the new attempts, in a large extent within the first year which is also of preventive value to know.
6: Were you able to look at the link between suicidal thoughts and the methods that people might consider and a later successful suicide attempt?
2: Yes, of course uh, the choice of method depends on your Intent. So those with a high intent who are in a dramatic situation and and, uh, really have decided to try to commit suicide would choose a more dramatic or violent method. Mm -hmm. That's one part of the the story. But then the availability of, of method is also relevant. So it's not only a matter of intent, but other factors may also apply.
6: Yes. Well, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you.
0: And that paper is available for free online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll stay with the topic of suicide, with the story of a man who jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge, but lived to tell the tale. Join us then. Thank you. Goodbye. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.